Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are joined by my man, Sean Palmer. Hey, how's it going, Luke? Good. He's holding up the new book just to make sure there's no ambiguity. So you will get the title right since you've asked me three Kingdom times. And Kingdom and Country. Isn't there like a, a music group King for King and Country? There is a group called For King and Country. And uh, I... My, Did they do the soundtrack? No. Here's a funny thing. When we were living in Temple, which is out more rural than Houston, right? They came through. This was maybe eight, nine years ago. And they were explaining... For King and Country is the name of the group. They were, they were explaining their name, right? And this illusion that they were trying to make. That, that Jesus is the king. And they were trying to say that the country was the kingdom of God. Like that's how they were explaining their name. But where I was living was so rednecky, right? They could not get to that explanation before everyone just started cheering when they said country. <laughs> and it's like, they're yeah, not really, they're not no. really flag waving about this. Like it's, no. it's a kingdom of God and uh, apologies to central Texans for me calling them rednecky, except for the ones about say, like, who carry that as a badge and said, heck yeah, I am yeah. rednecky, which is about 50, 50. Yeah. Well, so the, for the 50% that haven't uh, turned you <laughs> off already, um, we have a great conversation in store for you. Sean is just coming off of a very triumphal weekend preaching at the Westover Hills Church and just a dominant performance. I was out of town, and I've heard nothing but rave reviews. Uh, my, my favorite one so far is uh, where someone intimated that you have a lot of the get-off-my-lawn kids energy <laughs> in a very positive way. As someone who carries that so well, uh, not just in person, but also on social media, what do you think is the source of that uh, almost endless supply of get off my lawn kids <laughs> energy? Where does that come from, Sean? That's a fabulous question. So probably because I'm not a millennial and I was raised by parents who were like, um, nobody cares about your feelings. Get up and get mm -hmm. stuff done. Like life's mm -hmm. not supposed to be easy. Uh, uh -huh. comfort is not a fruit of the spirit, you know? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and so I just kind of carry that energy when people uh, complain or expect everything to be easy. Like I was like, no, my mom, my parents said things like feelings aren't facts and, um, mm. get up and get it done. And so I kind yeah. of move that forward into what many people, not just me, um, interpret mm -hmm. as a season in our culture where um, um, everything uh, is interpreted or ex so people expect most things to be easier than they have a right to expect them to be. And so that's where mm -hmm. the get off my lawn kids energy comes from. So and it, it's, it's true. So I'm not making it up. It's not put on. I'm just like that. No, it's, it's genuine. <laughs> um, so that is the origin story. Is that an origin story for a hero or an origin story for I a villain? I think you could go either way with that. I think it's what you do okay. with it. All it's right. like humor, right? Like you could use it for a power you can use for good or evil. Okay, fair enough. Uh, speaking of millennials, uh, our friend Jay Miller mm -hmm. sent me something in a direct message that I thought, I'm going to put that in my story. And then I thought, no, I'm not going to, but I'll put it on uh, the podcast, of course. It was, uh, you know, it was the, you know, white guy unable to do some sort of a like home repair kind of thing. And it was like a New York Post story that said millennials are such so much less likely to do home repairs than their boomer parents. And then one of the comments was like, yeah, sure. But at least I have the emotional availability to tell my daughter I love her. <laughs> 
And I was like, that's <laughs> true. That's Dead me. on. Yeah. Dead that's on. It. Yeah. And this is not, yeah. so I was a, as you know, I was in youth ministry for a dozen years and I actually love millennials. They were all the kids in my youth group. I think they take so much unnecessary crap. They are so much farther along in, in many ways than generations who came before them. Uh, but I do just enjoy being curmudgeonly and, and not just about them, but about a lot of populations, yeah, but they are, a lot they of are things. fabulous. You do I think they are a fabulous cohort and probably America's strongest cohort right now in terms of the changes I'd, I'd like to see in the world. Well, as a geriatric millennial, I, I believe is that that's my classification, uh, as I've been told. Uh, I'll take that as an honor, like that we're the best, we're the best there is. I mean, we are the best generation, and I, I know there needs to be a book written about us. And uh, maybe Tom Brokaw's grandson will write that book about us being the... Oh, yeah. is, didn't Tom Brokaw write yeah, that book? Yeah, the greatest book? generation. Book but see, I, yeah, yeah, we're I'm good. a Gen Xer, and we are the second silent generation. We probably will not ever have a... There will probably not ever be a president of the United States from my generation. Um, but we actually are the ones who built the world that millennials have moved forward in more healthy ways. So when you think about things like social media and those kind, like all of the Apple, those are all built technically um, by late boomers and, and Gen Xers. Um, so the, the next move is, is for millennials to actually see the, the good purposes of all of those things. Yeah, um, trying to think what millennials create. I, here's the thing: I, I don't really care much about the different generations, and that, like I don't really re, like that's not my mm-hmm. thing. I don't really get into that. Um, I just feel like yeah, people are always different, and we're who we are in a, in a response to the people who are before us. And like every time we criticize the next generation, I feel like if we had just a little bit of insight and honesty, we go, they're that way because of us. Yeah, like typically it's, it's because, it, and this is, I mean, this is my undergraduate degree is in this stuff. So I actually kind of like talking about it. Um, it's the, so whatever your, the generation boomers created the millennials, right? Um, and so what's interesting on a church staff, we have to think through this stuff. We have like 30 something, 40 people on our church staff and you got a lot of Gen Xers and we have a lot of millennials. What's interesting, we do these staff surveys every year. What our millennials and now our Gen Ys, what they expect from the workplace is really different from what our Gen Xers expect from the workplace. Like we just go on, go we on. Hire. What's the difference? So uh, millennials are far more likely. This is not a blanket statement. They're far more likely to expect more from their workplace in terms of meaning for my life, um, personal development, professional development. They want it to be a source of where they make friends. Um, and Gen Xers are kind of folks and above, generally speaking, all of this is generally speaking, like, um, I showed up, I went to work, where's my paycheck? We expect far less from, so the Gen Xers on our staff will say things like, um, we, we have times where we do lots of encouragement. We call them high fives in our all staff and the millennials like eat that stuff up. And when you ask the Gen Xers on staff, they will say things like, how about a monthly salary of some kind? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, you hired me to do the thing. I showed up. I did the thing. I got paid. Like, that's the, that's the reward. And, that's the high and what we find with our younger staff members is that they want mentoring. They want personal development. They want professional development. And they are expecting it to come from their workplace. And they will judge whether or not their workplace is a good workplace 
based on all of those factors. And they want a workplace that is actually producing a good in the world. This is what I talk about, like the good things that millennials bring. They actually expect where they go to work, where they spend their money, uh, the things that consume their time to produce good in the world. They are far less transactional about work. Mm -hmm. But what that also means is that they are far more demanding from senior executives, the people above them. Um, and so that's something that many corporations, many companies, many churches are having to work out. We just hired this week our first staff member who was born in the year 2000. Oh, wow. And like, that's a completely different deal. Wow. Um, like we are now getting to where we're hiring staff members who are yeah. very close to the age of my children. How does that make you feel? Great. They bring such energy. I feel like um, as long as you know they're not your children, right? Like you're actually not my child. Um, I, I love the energy. I love the creativity. I, I remember Andy Stanley saying, like, you, you get to an age where you have to realize like, you, don't, you won't have the next great idea. Your job is to recognize the great ideas when they come. Um, Dude, that's great. And that's so true. So this one particular staff person, I was part of her onboarding and they were talking about whether or not she fit the job description. And I said, we have to hire her and figure out where she fits in because she is going to be an incredible asset for our church and for the kingdom because of, because of her gifts and for it to be warehoused and someone that is this young to just be a part of her story. Like I was like, we need to, like I'm more interested in being part of her story than us just bringing her on staff because she's going to do some great things. So as curmudgeonly as I am, um, I I do it for my own entertainment and for fun because mm -hmm. well, it is they're nice. great people. Yeah, this is kind of like that uh, the scene at the end of Scrooge where all of a sudden you realize Scrooge can smile and have fun. <laughs> you know, like this is you know this is a really endearing moment for <laughs> your. Your listeners who are like, wait a minute, he actually has joy in his life. How did that happen? Yeah, you know, it depends on when you catch me. Okay, so <laughs> we're catching at a good time, which is great. Um, which means it's probably a great time to also talk about uh, King and Country, this this new book that you are uh, a contributor on. Mm -hmm. There's uh, any other writers on there that my listeners would recognize? Oh, yeah, it's really this great conglomeration of people um, who are doing what I think some of the more important thinking and ministry folks like Derek Vreeland. Um, Derek works uh, mm -hmm. with uh, your good with friend. BC, right? Yeah. With, with yeah. Brian Zahn. Um, Speaking of snarky. <laughs> Mandy Smith, uh, who uh, was here in the States for a long time, has returned um, to Australia. I think her closing chapter is really profound. Um, Juliet Liu, she's on the board with me at Missio Alliance. She's the chair of the board at Missio Alliance, where I serve as the vice chair. Uh, and, and folks like that who really have been able to like, take a step back and look at what's going on in a lot of different communities, it's really multivocal in, the terms of, in terms of ethnicities, gender, and giving a snapshot of what churches can and should be thinking and doing at a really interesting moment in the West and in America in terms of what we are experiencing as Christians and Christian nationalism and the rise yeah. of polarization in politics. So I think it's a worthy book to pick up. It's actually book two in a three-part series. 
um, where they were bringing together lots of different voices to have important conversations about what's actually facing the church. Yeah. And I don't think there's, a, I don't think there's a bigger issue right now than the way that the church and politics, the church and uh, nationality interact. I think that seems to be one of the central issues back. I think probably my farewell nod to Twitter was I tweeted something <laughs> that had a little bit of traction um, because I said something about, I've seen a lot of people mm-hmm. leave their church uh, because it doesn't match their politics, but I've seen very few people leave their politics because it doesn't match their church. And I think the reason that that was uh, a comment that so many people connect to is because we're like, yeah, that's, that's what everyone notices that the allegiance that we have to our vision for what our country should be seems to precede our commitment to the kingdom of God as presented in our local communities. And so, yeah, I think this is a, you know, a pretty central issue. And you start off the chapter that you write telling a story uh, about a girl. Was her, her name Asia? Is that her right? name's Asia in the book. Okay. And in real life, it is Alexia. <laughs> no, I don't know what it actually is. Uh, it's Asia in the yeah. book. And so this is, set the scene for it. This is yeah. Georgia. Yeah, right? so I grew up in uh, Mississippi and Georgia. And when I was um, in late elementary school, so about sixth grade, there was a girl who was new to our town. This was in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Stone Mountain will be uh, memorable for some of you because Martin Luther King Jr. name checks Stone Mountain and I Have a Dream speech. It was used as an armory for the Confederacy and is also on the side of Stone Mountain right now is um, a carving of Ulysses S. Grant. No, I'm sorry. Robert Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Thomas Jefferson. And these are heroes to the South uh, for... Lots of different reasons we can talk about later. But that's just to set the context. And she was from Africa, but not only that, but she was Jehovah's Witness. And what stood out to me and our other students is every day when we said the Pledge of Allegiance, which we said every morning at the beginning of the school year, um, she did not stand for the pledge or say the pledge. And when I talked with my parents about this, hey, there's this new girl, you're in sixth grade. You know, this was 1986. We were not as broad as we are now um, in our understanding of other people and other cultures. And my parents explained to me that Jehovah's Witness don't say the pledge because of their particular theological um, agreements about what it means to ally ourselves to something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously I still remember that story, but it was so out of step with our culture is probably why it's stood out to me. And so what I do in the chapter is... Can, can yeah. I interrupt you for I got follow-up mm-hmm. questions for you to the rest of the chapter. Okay. So uh, sixth grade girl, mm-hmm. she's from Africa. Mm-hmm. As in like, she moved from Africa to Georgia and then she started going to your school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right? Oh. So she's new, new to the culture of the South mm-hmm. and a religion that um, probably not a ton of Jehovah's Witness in the Georgia community that you're from. Is that fair to say? Yeah, probably not. No, that's that's fair. Yeah. And then you also identify her as, like, she maintained much of the culture that she brought from Africa in her dress and her diet. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot that a sixth grader is carrying that differentiate her from the rest of her class. Right. And- right. And so... And- and on top of that, she doesn't stand for the, the pledge. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm thinking as I'm reading this chapter, like, oh, my goodness, like, this is sixth grader. So let's say she's 12, 13-ish, something like mm-hmm. that. And she has 
some level of fortitude that most do not have to be able to be, uh, as our guy Stanley Hauerwas would say, a resident alien right. in such a strong fashion to her belief. So like that's like, that's quite newsworthy that this is who we're talking about. Like this this person is unique. Yeah, it really is amazing um, for a couple of different reasons that most kids – if it was going to stand as a relation relational barrier with other kids, like she would just stand with the stand for the pledge at school and just never tell her parents about it. Right. Like that's what most kids would do. Yeah, Um, exactly. But she didn't. And I would say like, I don't think she made a whole lot of friends that year. Um, We didn't know what to do with her, but the flip side of that is that not standing for the pledge, being a cultural outsider in many different ways, in America is acceptable if it's limited. So one person in a class of 25 kids, not doing it for religious reasons, nobody writes home about, no one gets concerned about the teachers don't make a Mm -hmm. big deal of it. I wonder what happens looking back at that story now. Like what if there were five of us? Yeah. Yeah. Or even just two yeah. of you. Like if <laughs> like when, there f- when the second one does that, like that becomes like a revolt or rebellion or there's something. Yeah. So it's one of the things that I when I talk with churches about uh, racial and ethnic diversity, I said everybody wants diversity at about six percent to fifteen percent. When yeah. it gets up over fifteen percent, that's when folks start hearing the language of they're starting to take over. Because yeah. they're I talked to yeah, yeah, I talked to uh, uh, Derwin Gray, and he cited some sociologist who said at 20% mm-hmm. and above, that's a multicultural church. But when you're below that, when you're in that 15% range like you're mentioning, it can still be we have a, a dominant culture, and we have a, like some spices to our, our way of doing things, but it's still our way of doing things. After, like you said, above 15 when you get to 20, like mm-hmm. culturally things are changing. Yeah, that's when at 20%. Cultures can no longer deny your voice and they're and continuing to do whatever it is they do. So we, we love diversity under 15% somewhere around there because it makes us feel good about being diverse, but it's also so small that the dominant culture can still have its way on the important matters to them. Okay. Can I ask you a, mm-hmm. a question? We like to feel good about being diverse. Mm-hmm. I, I just sent your name to someone who was asking, uh, what's it like to be a person of color in predominantly white spaces? And you've, you've done that through your career for years where you've been in predominantly white spaces as a person of color, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Um, we like to feel diverse. Do you ever notice that – do you ever feel like people want you there so that they can feel diverse, but they don't really want your full voice? They just want to feel like they're divor- diverse? Oh, yeah, 100%. So there is, um, and so this happened for me about five years ago where I didn't want you to say two days ago. I just didn't want you to say (laughs) when you're, I was at this two days ago when I was at your, (laughs) I was at this church in Austin, (laughs) (laughs) uh, five years ago. Yeah. So five years ago, I was invited to speak at a, at a conference and, um, it was late and I, I knew just from when they asked to when the conference was like, nobody plans a conference this late in the cycle. So I went immediately before I said, um, before I said yes or no to the website and they had all of these speakers, they were all white and they had one, one black speaker. And so 
I went ahead and said yes for a couple of different reasons. But then when they changed the website, they had taken off that guy and put me on. And I was like, oh, like this guy backed out and they needed you're the new black. Yeah, they needed a new black guy. <laughs> and so I charged them a lot of money to come and do that. <laughs> um, Which is the right move. Right? Like, I get it. That's fair. That's fair. Because. I got to a point about five years ago where I decided I would refuse to be um, a black face without a black voice. And I sat down with my wife, some close friends, and we decided, you know what, that, that's going to mean that the phone's going to stop ringing to some degree. And I, and I was okay with that. And there are, there's just a sense that I have about groups, conferences, churches, where they want someone on the program that makes them feel good about being diverse as long as that person doesn't challenge them in the areas they don't want to be challenged in. And is that what you mean by being uh, a black face without a black voice? Yeah, like they're looking for, um, well, I don't want to disparage anybody, uh, but they're look there. There's do. a, I want to do that a lot. Um, no, um, this is what it, the Candace Oification of Christian conferences. <laughs> oh, God. <coughs> like, Sean Palmer on the podcast today. Uh, we're now listening to Sean Palmer talking. Carry on. And so there's a lot I like about Candace Owens. I love that she speaks her mind, that she's articulate, she's clear. But one of the things that people love about Candace Owens, certain people love about Candace Owens, is that she's a black person who says what white people think. And she's totally free and open to say any of that. And I think people who debate her or want to debate her or take her to task need to do it on the merits of what she says. But I wonder how much of her popularity is built on the fact that like here is because every, there are tons of white people in the world who can listen to a hundred black people say that this is X. And if there's one white person, if there's one black person rather that says, no, it's not X, it's Y, they will say, well, have you ever heard of Y? Because this one black person says it, right? So this is when I was living in California. Um, I tell the story in Unarmed Empire about one of our church leaders starting to send me all of these books by Thomas Sowell, who is a, who is a black conservative. And so I was like, do you think that I don't know what Thomas Sowell thinks, first of all, why do you think I would not agree with Thomas Sowell? Like, like you're making that up. So why are you sending me these books? You think that I just like, you have found the one black person who believes what you believe and you will then use that one voice to disregard thousands of voices who disagree with that one voice. And so mm -hmm. when people want a black face without a black voice is they want someone who, who is, African-American, but doesn't challenge them in ways that other African-Americans have traditionally challenged them. And hmm. all of that needs to be dealt with on its merits from argument to argument. There is a problem with any group of people, whether it's African-Americans or whether it's Christians, kind of aligning with one set of priorities or positions because they will eventually be taken for granted. Um, but I decided, like, that was just not my role. And I also mm -hmm. stopped talking about racial... Um, Re reconciliation and started talking about racial justice because uh, reconciliation signals to people that there are two parties who are equally at odds with one another over a dispute.
And that's not actually what we're yeah. talking about. Uh, we're talking about justice for people who have been traditionally uh, maligned and subverted in a country. And there's so much work on this that's really good. I think like Jamar Tisby's Color of Compromise and so many others yep. that the history of black and brown people in the United States is clear and evident and undeniable from a historical perspective. And if you don't want to deal with that perspective, that's fine. But just com- just say that that's what you want to do. Like, just say that you don't want yeah. to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tisby's book is is brilliant, and uh, like just a historical understanding of what's what's actually transpired is it's something that everyone needs to experience. Also, I've got one Jabbar Tisby story. We did a podcast, and we we wrapped up, and I said, "All right, hey, great talking to you. Nice to meet you." Blah blah blah. And I hit the the hang up button, but there was like a pause from like when it, I hit the hang up mm-hmm. button, and he thought he hung up, and then when it actually shut down, and I heard him about to say something, I was like, "Oh, oh, you." you don't think I can hear what you're about to say right now. And I was terrified of what he was going to say. <laughs> and so, cause, cause he's like, he's hanging up the phone, but he's like, I can still hear him. And I like, I try to take my headphones off, but I, he goes, Oh, that was fun. And I was like, Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's all I wanted to hear. I just didn't want you to say that was awful. Anyway. Um, it, yeah, there's, there's an issue where we don't want, we don't want to listen. Like that's, that's a human problem. Like we, we just don't want to listen. We want people to validate what we already think. We want people to affirm what we already believe to be true. And I think part of what it means to be a good human being, especially um, an unarmed kingdom, shout out to your previous book, um, people who are committed to the kingdom of God means that we have the ability to listen to other opinions and other perspectives so that we can get a, a better understanding of what actually is true. And um, like to, to circle back to this book, one of the things that I think it helps us do, specifically your chapter, is helps us re-understand what our allegiance actually is. And your story about your classmate, Asia, who's not standing up for the pledge, like brings up an important conversation because many of us are used to pledging our allegiance to the flag because that's what we've, we've always done. And we haven't really taken uh, like a critical, positive sense of word critical, like a critical assessment of, wait a minute, should Christians be making a pledge of allegiance to anything outside of Jesus, which is what we've pledged our allegiance to in the waters of baptism? And so why do you like the word allegiance so much? You, you make a move to use that word instead of other words that many Christians use uh, for their devotion to Jesus. Why do you like that word allegiance so yeah. much? Well, and this gets back to me being a curmudgeon. Right. Because one of the ways that I am a curmudgeon is that I insist that words have to have meaning. Like if we're mm-hmm. going to have a fruitful conversation, if you're going to have meaningful relationships, we have to agree on what words mean. And so I was taken several years ago by Matthew Bates's book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And his argument in that book, and I think it's a really well done one, is that faith that we read in the New Testament is better translated allegiance, that we are Mm. claiming allegiance to God. So if that is true, like allegiance has to mean something and you cannot be, uh, you cannot have allegiance to multiple things in the same degree at the same time. Okay. So if I, and I talk about this as well in the chapter. Can can I interrupt Mm -hmm. for a second? I want you to break down why we like the word allegiance better than faith or trust, which are often often used instead of allegiance? Well, there are a couple of modern reasons why. Because when we talk about faith in Christian context now, what we talk about is something pretty nebulous, ethereal. Um, you got to have faith. You got to have more faith. Well, how do, you, how do you actually practically have more faith? You can't make yourself wake up tomorrow and have more faith. 
But allegiance is a doing word. So when I am allied to something, when I have given it my allegiance, then I know what to do when competing priorities or competing temptations enter into that space. So if mm-hmm. you have an if you have fidelity, allegiance to mm-hmm. your spouse, when another person is attracted to you and wants to have a relationship with you, I cannot do that because I have already made my allegiance clear, my fidelity is known. So you mm-hmm. automatically those other relationships automatically fall subordinate to my allegiance. Mm-hmm. Um, faith makes us think that we can have faith in God and have allegiances other than to things, to other things that are not God. And one of the cases that, that Bates is making um, is that that language of faith is pretty limited in terms of what Jesus is actually calling us to. Another book, way that I talk about it in the book is this idea of priorities. Like when people say mm-hmm. things like, well, that's one of my priorities. Well, no, it's not. Like, that's not the way words actually work. Um, you can only have a priority um, because it has to come prior to the other things. Okay, I might not have actually known that. <laughs> so it's like... So you, the word, like, the word literally, it, it literally doesn't mean literal anymore. Priority means there's only one thing that's paramount. Yes. Like there, there can only be one priority. Yeah. There can't be multiple priorities. Like this is my priority. It comes prior right. to other commitments. So okay, now you can have them in different domains. Like when you are at home, you can say today, my priority is to clean the kitchen, but be careful mm-hmm. if you say that, because if your daughter comes in and says, daddy, do you want to play? And you've made this your claim that your priority mm-hmm. is cleaning the kitchen. No, honey, I can't play because this is my priority. But this comes prior. Yes, this comes prior or after I'm done with the kitchen. But most of us would say my priority is my family. So even if I really badly want to clean the kitchen, if my daughter comes in and says, dad, do you want to play? I'm going to play because that actually comes prior to That this. actually is the priority. Okay, so when we're thinking of allegiances, it, it reflects that, there is nothing that comes prior to our fidelity and our commitment to the kingdom of God. Yeah, and to say the pledge, and I leave this question open because I really do think it's one that people have to discern for themselves. When you say, I pledge allegiance to the flag, mm-hmm. like either it comes prior to your other to other things that are important to you, or you really don't mean it when you say it. Either we don't mean the word prior in priority or we don't mean the word pledge. Yeah, when I, when I, when I pledge yeah. my allegiance, that means that if something infringes upon my time, investment, energy, money, that is not that, my allegiance is pledged to this flag. And so it has to be subordinate to that allegiance. And either... That's the way we've organized our lives or we don't mean it when we say it. And I would guess that most of the people who listen to your podcast, most people you know, what they, the camp they would fall into is I say the Pledge of Allegiance, but I don't mean it when I say it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we like that. I love the kingdom of God and I'm very grateful for my country. Which is appropriate. But, okay, that's appropriate. But when we sync those together 
that can become really damning. Like that's the the problem when those two have an equal parallel level of importance in our life. Yeah, I don't think most of us have really considered what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord. How so? Because Jesus is Lord is an inherently political comment. Like it's a mm-hmm. commitment that is. And so that means that if something infringes upon the Lordship of Jesus in my life, that I will choose the Lordship of Jesus every time. So mm-hmm. what that further means is that if there's something or someone that I support, um, and that's why I think all policy, all politicians from Christians should only enjoy conditional and limited support. Um, when it, because, uh, because when it infringes upon the Lordship of Jesus, I have to reject it because that's my, my allegiance, my fidelity is to Jesus. And so Mm -hmm. I have to reject and resist your attempts to employ that on me or other people because that's where I have literally pledged my allegiance. I have said, Jesus is Mm -hmm. Lord. When you come and do something that um, frustrates the intentions of Jesus, then I am no longer on board with your project. And that's the only way for faith to means to have a meaningful connotation. Can can I ask you, and I don't really want to get too much in the weeds, but I would like for you to flesh this out because there has to be a point where you go, okay, I have a limited commitment to whichever political party is your thing. But at, at some point, and you're a Houstonian, so I know you'll get this. At some point, you got to pack up your bags and go to Cancun when everything freezes over. <laughs> and so what, <laughs> um, like, do you, without being like too partisan here, like, can you help flesh us out a little bit more for us? Yeah, well, I hope it's not too partisan because I'd like to see myself as a nonpartisan. So mm-hmm. the general guideline for my own personal political engagement is to be interested in policy, not parties or politicians. And so that way I can take them as they come. Is this policy good or bad? Um, Is this policy worthy or unworthy? Um, And and that's what you were saying about Candace Owens just a second ago. Like each of the arguments need to be engaged independent of you know, her, who, whoever it is, right. like everything needs to be independent. Like, let's look at the actual policy or the subject matter we're talking about, not the person or where they're coming from or what network they're on. Like, yeah. I feel like that's kind of your game. Yeah. yeah. And so that, that's one way to, that's one way to do it. But I think it's also crucial for Christians to say to parties and politicians, um, you have us for this thing. I, I'm invested for this thing. Don't expect my wholesale buy-in to your entire platform. And as soon mm-hmm. as you do something that I feel like frustrates the will of God, then I will, you will find yourself in opposition to what I'm doing in the world. Cause I want to be involved in what Jesus is doing in the world. Now what's happened mm-hmm. for way too long. It's not just recent occurrence and it's not just one party that's done this is put all of their eggs in one basket and, and become virtually a voting block for persons and politicians. And that actually strips us of any influence we have to shape the future. Um, But that happens when you are, when you, when you subordinate fidelity to Jesus with fidelity to a country, because then your main argument becomes the survival of the country. 
and listen to the language that people use. Like we are going to, and I've heard this That's recently right. from the yeah. right and the left, like we've got to do this to save the country, like to yeah. rescue the country. Uh, that, that language tends to suggest that for you, the survival of the country comes prior to uh, the embodiment of the kingdom of God where you live. What if some people are going, but I think certain things are really important and I, I, I want this to be in place. You, you want things that are just and right. You want policies that are just and right. And so when you see that they're changing or that they're not being put in place or that they're not changing fast enough, like wherever you're coming from, like it, it does matter those things. And so like, I, I feel like people should be able to have like, Hey, this is significant. This is important. But without elevating to the level of kingdom. Yeah, and that's why you advocate for, that's why Christians should be people of policy and not parties Mm -hmm. or politicians. I love that. Because then we look at the actual policy initiative and make, and and do our discerning in that space. Instead of saying, we're we're part of this group. And now whatever the group does we're bought in because that's where we find our identity. You actually cannot hold people accountable once you have allowed them to consume you into their group. Um, Say that again. You cannot hold people accountable once you've allowed them to consume you into their group. So whether you are a black church in the South that has traditionally voted for Democrats or you are a mega church in Dallas and you have the conservative presidents come and speak to your congregation, like they've got you in the pocket. So they actually don't need to listen to your perspective on anything. Like it's a very disempowering place to be. Um, and I think when people run for election, they should have to come to Christians and Christian leaders and make their case in Christian terms every time. And we virtually don't have that because we have allowed the country to take over for the kingdom, to stand in place of the kingdom. And they know it. And so what, what would happen? Because nothing in this country can happen without the participation of Christians. Um, mm. We say, you know what? We're, we're, we are not in our affections pledged to this country to the same degree that we are pledged to the kingdom of God. And insofar as you represent what we believe God is doing in the world, we will be supportive of those aspects of it. And when you are not supportive of what God is doing in the world, we will resist you with everything that we have. I think that makes for a different politic for Christians. Um, If you meet someone on the street and you tell them that you are a Christian and they know what your politics are, and they don't know what your faith commitments are and how that's lived out. That's a problem for the Christian community. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think the point about how they, they've got us, which, you know, whichever you know, kind of church you just described, like if, if people know hey, you're part of this church, therefore you vote this way, it seems that we have been neutered in the type of influence that we could have. And then we become more loyal because we've got to keep our people in office. We have to get get our people in office instead of going, we, we need the people that we support to be for the things that we support and that we value instead of the other way around. 
Because it seems like the, the loyalty thing is very powerful because once you're part of a group, then you want your group to maintain and to hold on. And this is part of the, like the problem is that we'll see people leave church because it doesn't match their politics because in some ways, like the political allegiance is stronger than it is to the, our churches. Like where we go, if, if the politics aren't being supported in the church, we go, we need to change the church. And you go, I, I think right there speaks to your issue about allegiance. Yeah. So we, um, you know, when you have someone leave your church, yeah, we will have people leave our church the same week because one person will say we are too woke. Mm -hmm. And um, the other person will say that we're too Trumpy. Right. Um, Is it, doesn't that make you feel good though? Yeah. Like when, when you have people on both sides leave, I'm being no. dead serious. Like the, I, I've had people on both sides leave and I go, you know, it sucks they're gone because they're people that we care about. But in a more like um, like macro level, like 10,000 feet, you're going, well, you're doing something right if you're having both groups leaving on either extreme to go, all right, th this means we're kind of where we're supposed to be. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. And what we find, like what our experience has been, is that we get that response because we have not given people the typical places to land intellectually and emotionally that our culture does. So when you talk about anything, hmm. I mean, one of the tasks of churches right now is to say the categories that you've been given by culture, left, right, um, are not going to be our categories. And mm -hmm. if you came here for that, or if you were expecting that, or it's, it's risen to uh, a high enough um, a high enough level in your own heart and mind, like you're going to be very frustrated here. So it's very much like our mutual friend, Jonathan Storm, it tells me a story about a guy he was working with um, who decided that he actually did want to follow Jesus. And the guy told Jonathan, hey, I'm a really hardcore like right winger. And if one of the joys of my life is getting online and owning the libs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if I follow Jesus, I can't do that anymore. Exactly. He gets it. <laughs> he gets it. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you 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 get it. Like that that's it. Like when Jesus is Lord, you can't treat people that way. And it doesn't mean you can't vote for the left or the right or whichever one you think is, you know, the best option at the time. But it does mean that you can't demonize the other side. You can't play the games that politics do where like everything is against flesh and blood. Like that is the extent of everything. And so all of a sudden, like this guy gets it. I love yeah. it. I think that's yeah, that's a great example. Can can we circle back to the Pledge of Allegiance? Sure. Okay, you've got daughters, mm -hmm. one who's now here in Austin, mm -hmm. hook them horns, let's go. Congratulations on being a great dad, because uh, you got a daughter, go to the University of Texas, which is a sign that you're, you should be writing parental book, really, <laughs> that's what you should be writing. It's like, how do you turn out great kids? That's why. Um, your kids probably had Sports Center come on, uh, like I showed <laughs> there, but um, have you had conversations about the pledging allegiance mm -hmm. with your kids? Mm -hmm. If so, how did that conversation go? Well... I don't think they would mind me saying I am the only person in my immediate family who says the pledge. Um, oh, okay. And um, growing up as you did in churches of Christ, believe it or not, we have probably known lots of people, probably more than the average person of people who didn't say the pledge. Um, yeah. Um, but I do it as a sign of cultural solidarity with my neighbor. Right. So mm -hmm. it is more of a missional move for me in terms of uh, being all things to all men. Like this should not be a barrier. 
for us mm-hmm. to have meaningful conversations about what God is up to in, in the world. But I know if I, if I stand for the pledge, if I say the pledge, I don't mean it what the words actually do mean. But they have, and they, they never have. And they've gone to Christian schools um, for uh, all of, most of their lives. And I'll tell you something, you probably don't know this. There's a little group that I'm a part of, Luke, that's all African-American pastors who pastor in predominantly white spaces. And I would say that 90% of the people in that group, neither they nor their family says the Pledge of Allegiance. Hmm. Um, And for me, the chapter in the book is not about whether or not people say the pledge. Uh, It is about taking a hard look and interrogation of our allegiances in a way that actually does make sense. And what does our culture and our country ask of us when we stand for the pledge? Um, Mm -hmm. Like, are we making commitments there that are having a spillover effect in how we live and move through the world. And I think that's an important question to ask. I have, um, I, like I said, I say the pledge as a cultural accommodation for missional ends, but I do not ask anyone else to do that. And I think that's one of the great things about the country is that you don't actually have to say it. Um, and you don't actually have to mean it when you say it, but for Christians, we should at least examine what we mean when we say things. If, if you're going to have a coffee with a neighbor who is examining faith and looking at Jesus, like they need to be able to trust that when you say something like your, your words really are coherent and make mm-hmm. sense. And it is an in, it is a theologically incoherent position to say that you pledge yourself to a flag and pledge yourself to Jesus. Because you simply can't do both. Something has mm-hmm. to come prior. To main, maintain this position doesn't disqualify someone from being grateful for where they live. Mm-mm. It doesn't disqualify someone from being appreciative of the country that they're in, from paying their taxes, from doing the things that they need to do to be a good neighbor. But it does cause us to reassess what is the prior the prior commitment in our life. Is that fair to say? A hundred percent. And I'll give you an example. You and I, because we've been in ministry for a long time now, have known people in our churches who say worked for the same company for 30 plus years. Mm -hmm. And they get to the point of retirement and they're looking at all of the people that they met, all of the meaningful work that they were able to do, the way that this company cared for them, whether it's healthcare and salary when they were there for them in tough times. And they will say something like, I am really grateful to have been a part of this team for the last 30 years because it has had a meaningful impact on the quality of my life. We would never expect them to say, I pledge my allegiance to this company. Right. And so clearly we can be grateful and thankful for any number of things that have an enormous impact in our lives. We would even, that same guy, like might, metaphorically speaking, fight for his con- his company, right? And, and maybe did during a hostile takeover or something like that. Yeah. Um, but we would never ask, like our, our country asks us to do something 
that I suspect is only rightfully done in reference to the deity that has salvific power. Um, Mm -hmm. So, of course, you can love your country. You can sacrifice and serve your country. I'm grateful for people who do in a vocational sense. All of us do to some degree or another, even if it's just like paying taxes, obeying laws, um, working for a better country is part of loving your country. Uh, But for it to ask for your very being, which is what allegiance asks for, is an awfully big ask and one that we need to ask hard questions of. Yeah. I I can't not think about my combat veteran friends who haven't metaphorically fought for the country, but who literally have fought and have friends they've lost and, you know, are, are, are different people because of the, just the horrendous experience that war is. Mm-hmm. And I, any conversation like this puts them at the forefront of my mind going, I always want to understand that these people made a sacrifice and whether absolutely conversation about, and, and I hear you saying the same thing. Um, you know, whether the war as we understand it now is how they understood the war, you know, 15 years ago when they're going in or post nine 11, as they understood it then, like, I, yeah, all that is not the conversation here, but the individual sacrifices of individual people who believe that this is what they could do to, for the sake of others in the world and their country, like that, that always comes in the front of this, this conversation. And I, and I, I want to hold that tension of like, there has to be respect for that, but also understanding that that doesn't disqualify the prior commitment that, that everyone who claims Jesus is Lord has made that relegates that to a secondary commitment. It doesn't mean it's not a, a, a deep level of appreciation and gratitude, but one comes prior than the other. Yeah. And I just imagine it's an interesting imagination that we have as a people that you can say, God comes first in my life, which is what I'm saying in the chapter about pledging allegiance. Mm-hmm. And that be rightly or wrongly interpreted by some people as, well, you're saying our sacrifice doesn't matter. And like, no one, no one is saying that, right? And no one is saying that you don't respect your country. You don't fight for your country. It's interesting. Um, many of the combat veterans that I have known throughout the years are the people who are most ready to, who are most ready to say, uh, we have to realign our imagination as Americans, um, mostly because they think, because they are concerned about American hubris around the world. <laughs> so they have a kind of a different concern and like, we can't solve every problem everywhere is what, some of them would say, but you know, mm-hmm. I would say yeah. to the folks in my congregation, your congregation who served in the army, who sacrificed in one of the armed services, uh, that that's, that that sacrifice is real and good and probably more likely born out of your allegiance to God than your allegiance to country. And so it's very, uh, it's very common for people who love God deeply to say that the exercise of my love of God is inviting me or calling me to serve my country in these ways. Um, And their love of God, I think is the thing that's been under honored 
whether love of country has been amplified. Uh, so I've not yeah. met any, and like when I talk about, I remember being in Cincinnati several years ago, uh, speaking at a conference and I was talking about peace and love of peace. And a guy comes up to me in fatigues after I'm done. And I'm thinking, okay, like I'm, I'm going to be the receptacle for his, uh, upset with what I just yeah. said. Yeah. Yeah. And his, uh, his response to me was for all the soldiers I know, please keep saying the things that you're saying. Hmm. Um, so I, I think the armed services are as diverse as any organization in the world in terms of how they approach these really thorny, complex issues. Yep. Yep. It's tough. That's tough. And I, I just want to make sure that uh, people got to hear your clear answer on that and your clear perspective, which I think comes through in your writing. I just want them to hear it on the, on the podcast as well. Uh, Sean, this has been great. Thanks for uh, coming back on. First guest, last guest <laughs> of, I mean, of at least this week. Um, but Sean, it's great having you back on the podcast and uh, the book King and Country. It, it's out now, isn't it? Yeah, out now. It's, it's, Kingdom and Country, Following Jesus in the Land that You Love. And that full title is really important because it really is about following Jesus in the land that you love. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been great talking about following Jesus with a person that I love in you, Sean. <laughs> so thank you for being on the podcast. And uh, yeah, good seeing Talk you. Talk to you later, Rook. you just call me Rook? Rook. 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 I got my I tongue. My Rook. tongue got tied. That happens. That happens. Want me to say it again? <laughs> no. <we're> okay. Done. <laughs> <laughs>